This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Four, Part Twelve. On the 22nd of May the Commons were summoned to the bar of the Lords, and the King, seated on his throne, made a speech to both houses. He declared himself resolved to maintain the established government in church and state. But he weakened the effect of this declaration by addressing an extraordinary admonition to the Commons. He was apprehensive, he said, that they might be inclined to dole out money to him from time to time, in the hope that they should force him to call them frequently together. But he must warn them that he was not to be so dealt with, and that if they wished him to meet them often, they must use him well. As it was evident that without money the government could not be carried on, these expressions plainly implied that if they did not give him as much money as he wished, he would take it. Strange to say, this harangue was received with loud cheers by the Tory gentlemen at the bar. Such acclamations were then usual. It has now been, during many years, the grave and decorous usage of Parliaments to hear, in respectful silence, all expressions, acceptable or unacceptable, which are uttered from the throne. It was then the custom that, after the King had concisely explained his reasons for calling Parliament together, the minister who held the great seal should, at more length, explain to the Houses the state of public affairs. Guildford, in imitation of his predecessors, Clarendon, Bridgman, Shaftesbury, and Nottingham, had prepared an elaborate oration, but found, to his great mortification, that his services were not wanted. As soon as the Commons had returned to their own chamber, it was proposed that they should resolve themselves into a committee, for the purpose of settling a revenue on the king. Then Seymour stood up. How he stood looking like what he was, the chief of a dissolute and high-spirited gentry, with the artificial ringlets clustering in fashionable profusion round his shoulders, and a mingled expression of voluptuousness and disdain in his eye and on his lip, the likenesses of him which still remain enable us to imagine it was not the haughty cavalier said his wish that the parliament should withhold from the crown the means of carrying on the government but was there indeed a parliament was there not on the benches many men who had as all the world knew no right to sit there many men whose elections were tainted by corruption many men forced by intimidation on reluctant voters and many men returned by corporations which had no legal existence had not constituent bodies been remodelled in defiance of royal charters and of immemorial prescription had not returning officers been everywhere the unscrupulous agents of the court? Seeing that very principle of representation had been thus systematically attacked, he knew not how to call the throng of gentlemen which he saw around him by the honourable name of a House of Commons. Yet never was there a time when it more concerned the public weal that the character of Parliament should stand high. 
great dangers impended over the ecclesiastical and civil constitution of the realm. It was a matter of vulgar notoriety. It was a matter which required no proof that the Test Act, the Rampart of Religion, and the Habeas Corpus Act, the Rampart of Liberty, were marked out for destruction. Before we proceed to legislate on questions so momentous, let us at least ascertain whether we really are a legislature. Let our first proceeding be to inquire into the manner in which the elections have been conducted, and let us look to it that the inquiry be impartial. For if the nation shall find that no redress is to be obtained by peaceful methods, we may perhaps, ere long, suffer the justice which we refuse to do. He concluded by moving that, before any supply was granted, the House would take into consideration petitions against returns, and that no member whose right to sit was disputed should be allowed to vote. Not a cheer was heard. Not a member ventured to second the motion. Indeed, Seymour had said much that no other man could have said with impunity. The proposition fell to the ground, and was not even entered on the journals. But a mighty effect had been produced. Barillon informed his master that many who had not dared to applaud that remarkable speech had cordially approved of it, that it was the universal subject of conversation throughout London, and that the impression made on the public mind seemed likely to be durable. The Commons went into committee without delay, and voted to the King for life the whole revenue enjoyed by his brother. The zealous churchmen, who formed the majority of the House, seemed to have been of opinion that the promptitude with which they had met the wish of James, touching the revenue, entitled them to some concession on his part. They said that much had been done to gratify him, and that they must now do something to gratify the nation. The House, therefore, resolved itself into a grand committee of religion, in order to consider the best means of providing for the security of the ecclesiastical establishment. In that committee, two resolutions were unanimously adopted. The first expressed fervent attachment to the Church of England. The second called on the King to put in execution the penal laws against all persons who were not members of that Church. The Whigs would doubtless have wished to see the Protestant dissenters tolerated, and the Roman Catholics alone persecuted. But the Whigs were a small and a disheartened minority. They therefore kept themselves as much as possible out of sight, dropped their party name, abstained from obtruding their peculiar opinions on a hostile audience, and steadily supported every proposition tending to disturb the harmony which as yet subsisted between the Parliament and the court. When the proceedings of the Committee of Religion were known at Whitehall, the King's anger was great. Nor can we justly blame him for resenting the conduct of the Tories. If they were disposed to require the rigorous execution of the Penal Code, they clearly ought to have supported the Exclusion Bill. For to place a Papist on the throne, and then to insist on his persecuting to the death the teachers of that faith in which alone, on his principles, salvation could be found, was monstrous. In mitigating by a lenient administration the severity of the bloody laws of Elizabeth, the king violated no constitutional principle. 
he only exerted a power which has always belonged to the crown. Nay, he only did what was afterwards done by a succession of sovereigns zealous for Protestantism, by William, by Anne, and by the princes of the House of Brunswick. Had he suffered Roman Catholic priests, whose lives he could save without infringing any law to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, for discharging what he considered as their first duty, he would have drawn on himself the hatred and contempt even of those to whose prejudices he had made so shameful a concession. And had he contented himself with granting to the members of his own church a practical toleration by a large exercise of his unquestioned prerogative and mercy, posterity would have unanimously applauded him. The commons probably felt on reflection that they had acted absurdly. They were also disturbed by learning that the king to whom they looked up with such superstitious reverence was greatly provoked. They made haste, therefore, to atone for their offence. In the House they unanimously reversed the decision which in the committee they had unanimously adopted, and passed a resolution importing that they relied with entire confidence on His Majesty's gracious promise to protect that religion which was dearer to them than life itself. Three days later, the king informed the house that his brother had left some debts, and that the stores of the navy and ordnance were nearly exhausted. It was promptly resolved that new taxes should be imposed. The person on whom devolved the task of devising ways and means was Sir Dudley North, younger brother of the Lord Keeper, Dudley North was one of the ablest men of his time. He had early in life been sent to the Levant, and had therefore been long engaged in mercantile pursuits. Most men would, in such a situation, have allowed their faculties to rust, for at Smyrna and Constantinople there were few books and few intelligent companions. But the young factor had been one of these vigorous understandings which are independent of external aids. In his solitude he meditated deeply on the philosophy of trade, and thought out by degrees a complete and admirable theory, substantially the same with that which, a century later, was expounded by Adam Smith. After an exile of many years, Dudley North returned to England with a large fortune, and commenced business as a turkey merchant in the city of London. His profound knowledge both speculative and practical, of commercial matters, and the perspicuity and liveliness with which he explained his views speedily introduced him to the notice of statesmen. The government found in him at once an enlightened adviser and an unscrupulous slave, for with his rare mental endowments were joined lax principles and an unfeeling heart. When the Tory reaction was in full progress, he had consented to be made sheriff for the express purpose of assisting the vengeance of the court. His juries had never failed to find verdicts of guilty, and, on a day of judicial butchery, carts loaded with the legs and arms of quartered wigs were, to the great discomposure of his lady, driven to his fine house in Basinghall Street for orders. His services had been rewarded with the honour of knighthood, with an alderman's gown, and with the office of Commissioner of the Customs. He had been brought into Parliament for Banbury, and though a new member, 
was the person on whom the Lord Treasury chiefly relied for the conduct of financial business in the lower house. Though the Commons were unanimous in their resolution to grant a further supply to the Crown, they were by no means agreed as to the sources from which that supply should be drawn. It was speedily determined that part of the sum which was required should be raised by laying an additional impost for a term of eight years on wine and vinegar. But something more than this was needed. Several absurd schemes were suggested. Many country gentlemen were disposed to put a heavy tax on all new buildings in the capital. Such a tax, it was hoped, would check the growth of a city which had long been regarded with jealousy and aversion by the rural aristocracy. Dudley North's plan was that additional duties should be imposed for a term of eight years on sugar and tobacco. A great clamour was raised. Colonial merchants, grocers, sugar-bakers and tobacconists petitioned the house and besieged the public officers. The people of Bristol, who were deeply interested in the trade with Virginia and Jamaica, sent up a deputation which was heard at the bar of the Commons. Rochester was for a moment staggered, but North's ready wit and perfect knowledge of trade prevailed, both in the Treasury and in the Parliament, against all opposition. The old members were amazed at seeing a man who had not been a fortnight in the house, and whose life had been chiefly passed in foreign countries, assume with confidence and discharge with ability all the functions of a Chancellor of the Exchequer. His plan was adopted, and thus the Crown was in possession of a clear income of about £1,900,000. Derived from England alone, such an income was then more than sufficient for the support of the government in time of peace. The Lords had, in the meantime, discussed several important questions. The Tory party had always been strong among the peers. It included the whole bench of bishops, and had been reinforced during the four years which had elapsed since the last dissolution by several fresh creations. Of the new nobles, the most conspicuous were the Lord Treasurer Rochester, the Lord Keeper Guildford, the Lord Chief Justice Jeffreys, the Lord Godolphin, and the Lord Churchill, who, after his return from Versailles, had been made a Baron of England. The peers early took into consideration the case of four members of their body, who had been impeached in the late reign, but had never been brought to trial, and had, after a long confinement, been admitted to bail by the Court of King's Bench. Three of the noblemen, who were thus under recognizances, were Roman Catholics. The fourth was a Protestant of great note and influence, the Earl of Danby. Since he had fallen from power, and had been accused of treason by the Commons, four parliaments had been dissolved, but he had been neither acquitted nor condemned. In 1679, the Lords had considered, with reference to his situation, the question whether an impeachment was or was not terminated by a dissolution. They had resolved, after long debate and full examination of precedents, that the impeachment was still pending. That resolution they now rescinded. A few Whig nobles protested against this step, but to little purpose. The Commons silently acquiesced in the decision of the Upper House. Danby again took his seat among his peers, and became an active and powerful member of the Tory party. The constitutional question on which the Lords thus, in the short space of six years, pronounced two diametrically opposite decisions, slept during more than a century, and was at length revived by the dissolution 
which took place during the long trial of Warren Hastings. It was then necessary to determine whether the rule laid down in 1679, or the opposite rule laid down in 1685, was to be accounted the law of the land. The point was long debated in both houses, and the best legal and parliamentary abilities, which an age pre-eminently fertile both in legal and in parliamentary ability could supply, were employed in the discussion. The lawyers were not unequally divided. Thurlow, Kenyon, Scott, and Erskine maintained that the dissolution had put an end to the impeachment. The contrary doctrine was held by Mansfield, Camden, Loughborough, and Grant. But among those statesmen who grounded their arguments not on precedents and technical analogies, but on deep and broad constitutional principles, there was little difference of opinion. Pitt and Grenville, as well as Burke and Fox, held that the impeachment was still pending. Both houses, by great majorities, set aside the decision of 1685, and pronounced the decision of 1679 to be in conformity with the law of Parliament. Of the national crimes which had been committed during the panic excited by the fictions of Oates, the most signal had been the judicial murder of Stafford. The sentence of that unhappy nobleman was now regarded by all impartial persons as unjust. The principal witness for the prosecution had been convicted of a series of foul perjuries. It was the duty of the legislature, in such circumstances, to do justice to the memory of a guiltless sufferer, and to efface an unmerited stain from a name long illustrious in our annals. A bill for reversing the attainder of Stafford was passed by the upper house, in spite of the murmurs of a few peers who were unwilling to admit that they had shed innocent blood. The Commons read the bill twice without a division, and ordered it to be committed. But on the day appointed for the committee arrived news that a formidable rebellion had broken out in the west of England. It was consequently necessary to postpone much important business. The amends due to the memory of Stafford were deferred, as was supposed, only for a short time. But the misgovernment of James in a few months completely turned the tide of public feeling. During several generations the Roman Catholics were in no condition to demand reparation for injustice, and accounted themselves happy if they were permitted to live unmolested in obscurity and silence. At length, in the reign of King George the Fourth, more than a hundred and forty years after the day on which the blood of Stafford was shed on Tower Hill, the tardy expiation was accomplished, a law annulling the attainder and restoring the injured family to its ancient dignities, was presented to Parliament by the ministers of the Crown, was eagerly welcomed by public men of all parties, and was passed without one dissentient voice. It is now necessary that I should trace the origin and progress of that rebellion by which the deliberations of the Houses were suddenly interrupted. End of Part 12